Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Jordan Baylor on why religious liberty is a legacy of the Protestant Reformation. Luther initially is standing on his own, basically, you know, a man before God, a, con- a, a conscience convicted before God, and whatever the worldly authorities, whether they were popes or kings or emperors, were going to do to him, he was willing to suffer. Um, very quickly, you see, as I said, many people came to different conclusions based on those sorts of convictions about what the Bible said and taught and tried to live their lives accordingly, which meant they had different views about how the social order would work mm-hmm. or the, the legitimacy of political authority. Jordan Baylor, next. While the Protestant Reformation is typically seen as a theological movement returning the Christian faith to the centrality of Christ and the Scriptures, today's guest says religious liberty in the modern world is a key legacy of the Reformation. We contacted Dr. Jordan Baylor to discuss his world opinions piece, Religious Liberty and the Reformation. Dr. Baylor is Director of Research at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. For starters, Dr. Baylor, tell us about the center. Yeah, so as you said, I'm Director of Research. Um, You can think of it as as a think tank, a kind of outreach to academics, to students, uh, as well as the broader culture, um, trying to make the argument and explore the history and make the case for religion as a public good, as as a force that contributes to the public good and ought to be protected. We're housed at First Liberty Institute, which is a a public interest law firm that does religious liberty litigation. And they've been doing that for decades. And and relatively recently, you know, they've they've long had a vision for starting an institute, a think tank to go along with it in a kind of academic arm. And that's what the CRCD is, is is a kind of um, new initiative at First Liberty Institute that focuses, in some ways, you could think about it upstream from the law and the courtrooms. trying to make a positive case for religious liberty and religious believers in the, in the public square. Um, and in that way, we try to complement the work that First Liberty does. Obviously, recently, uh, October 31st, we marked the Protestant Reformation uh, beginning on that date. If you can tell us what happened, what was the Protestant Reformation? What happened on that date? What, what is its significance? I know there's a too much to get into too much detail at this point. Yeah, there's a lot and there's a lot of mythology and a lot of, uh, you know, things have passed into legend and lore from this era. But yeah, really 505 years ago, we can actually point to a date on October 31st, 1517. That's the date that's usually given for Martin Luther famously nailing his theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Um, whether he did it that day or not, um, it was it was the common practice of the day to, to post your academic theses or theses for public disputation in that manner. He did send a letter, which also contained these theses, these things he wanted to argue for, to the, uh, the Archbishop of Mainz on that day. And so this is usually, um, you know, appreciated, remembered, remembered, commemorated as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, this act of nailing these theses, these claims to the door of the Church of Wittenberg um, and Martin Luther's act in doing so as sparking the, the Protestant Reformation, which was to have, you know, go much further beyond Wittenberg mm-hmm. and, and last much longer down to our own day in terms of its consequences. Well, you say one of the uh, 
contested legacies of the Reformation, and there are many, but that's the matter of religious liberty. What is religious liberty then, and why do you say uh, it is a contested legacy of the Reformation? Yeah, so when we think about religious liberty today, we might think about things like the First Amendment, you know, which at the federal level in the United States explicitly prohibits an establishment of religion and protects the free exercise thereof. Um, it allows the states in that context to have their own, you know, their own work in protecting and promoting free exercise in the United States. That's in many ways a very modern idea that would be foreign, you know, to anyone really in the 16th century, certainly to somebody like Martin Luther. And at the same time, you can point to some logical consequences and some historical development that took place because of the kinds of things that were being argued in the time. So um, four years later, when Martin Luther is standing before um, the emperor, he, he appeals to his conscience in his reading of scripture and says, you know, unless you can show me from the scriptures uh and and from you know sound reason that i'm i'm wrong that, that this argument these arguments i'm making i'm wrong my conscience dictates that I, I must stand here and stand up for my convictions and i can here i stand i can do no other so it's this argument from personal conviction um that has such powerful consequences uh especially for something like religious liberty as it develops through the centuries you know it's not long of course before <laughs> you, you've got um as many convictions as there are people in the room right mm -hmm. when you start talking about opinions and you start talking about uh, personal convictions and even conscience conscientious convictions so um what luther does really is show that these what we think of often as you know separate categories like religion and politics have these really important overlaps and important implications for one another um and that what people believe about God and what people believe about reality and what people believe about the world and their neighbor have political consequences. That's not the only thing that's relevant for mm -hmm. religious belief, obviously, but people are willing to stand up and be killed and in some cases kill for those convictions. So these are important realities that um, that civil magistrates and, and kings and later on um, – parliaments and congresses have to deal with in terms of regulating and finding a way for us to accommodate people whose convictions differ and sometimes radically so from ours and and, and that's in many ways what this experiment is in america is a, is a way to try to find a lover find a way to live together amidst all of this disagreement and i do want to ask you a bit about that uh, in, in a few minutes but in terms of of the reformation which at least I think what you initially said, and, and the understanding is that it was largely a religious theological movement, at least at its base, and yet religious liberty is something that we're talking about here that flowed out of the Reformation. So there was some reform, uh, some understanding of the role of religion, the role of one's uh, freedom to worship as they choose that that grew out of the reformation there was a increased freedom in that in that respect that the reformation somehow brought about yeah so we're obviously talking about very complex phenomena here um it is the case i think that the major concerns that luther had um were doctrinal they had to do with theological convictions mm -hmm. his reading of the bible certainly when we talk about doctrines related to grace and salvation and faith we think of those as as you know primarily religious realities as i just indicated of course those have very clear implications for how we live our lives and, and organize our lives socially and politically 
Um, Luther was also concerned about political and economic realities too. There was a there's a political background certainly to what's going on in Wittenberg and the what allowed Luther basically to to say these kinds of things. Um, you know, he had political protection. Let's put it that way. He had support of the local leader mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in Germany, um, whose whose city Wittenberg was, provided him with a certain amount of of political protection. Now, that doesn't mean that Luther was never under any danger. You know, he he lived under a pseudonym for a while and went went away for a period to be hidden away, essentially to ha- have refuge in the castle at the Wartburg. Um. So, you know, in, in many ways, yes, looking from these kind of modern categories, there were deep theological convictions about God's grace that informed Luther. But there was also very clearly from the very beginning, important political dimensions and social implications of this gospel that Luther, in his view, rediscovered, you know, that had essentially been lost in the Middle, in the middle Ages and the theology of the, the Middle Ages. So it's it's a an interesting um era to study for these kinds of reasons because these things are so complex as i said you know luther initially is standing on his own basically you know a man before god a a conscience convicted before god and whatever the worldly authorities whether they were popes or kings or emperors were going to do to him he was willing to suffer um very quickly, you see, as I said, many people came to different conclusions based on those sorts of convictions about what the Bible said and taught and tried to live their lives accordingly, which meant they had different views about how the social order would work mm-hmm. or the, the legitimacy of political authority, the legitimacy of using the sword um, either in war or to maintain public peace within a, a particular you know, political area. So lots of... Um, diversity manifests itself really quickly and um you come to all kinds of uh different figures and groups and movements that are are um establishing themselves basically within the context of that next century after luther you know nails those theses to the to the church door well we are talking about religious liberty and the reformation certainly gaining a, an understanding for for the complexity of the issue but also an appreciation for the religious liberty that that, that we enjoy here uh, in this country and its connection to uh, the Reformation. My guest is Dr. Jordan Baylor. He is Director of Research at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. And and so just flowing out of the Reformation, some churches emerged, Dr. Baylor, of course, uh, most notably the Lutheran uh, Church, uh, the Church of England, and so on, and they had a close connection to or alliance with the state and its power, as you were as you were explaining just a few minutes ago, even the state uh, was able to punish religious violations. The church didn't punish them. The state punished them on behalf of the church. How are we to to understand that in terms of religious liberty? It seems like the religious liberties, uh, well, I guess they were kind of limited maybe initially. Yeah, that's right. So um, I think what you one way of understanding how religious liberty as we come to appreciate it today now 500 years later develops is that you have these ideas that um, are seminal are really important on their own for coming to a kind of theoretical understanding of 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 religious liberty as we understand it today but it takes time to work those out in practice there are many different experiments you could say or many different attempts to try to reconcile faithfulness to God and faithfulness to his will um, with civil and social order. 
And so you, you could understand these different kinds of establishments, these different kinds of churches that arise, and there are different kinds of relationships to, to political authority as different kinds of experiments or different kinds of models. So as you mentioned in, in Germany and in England, you're, you have a more or less a kind of an established church that's got a privileged position. Um, the exact theological and theoretical justification for that sometimes differs. Um, sometimes, as you said, it's not the church doing the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, you know, the temporal exercise of power. It's the, the civil authority. But of course, uh, worldly rulers were understood as God's ministers too at this time. So it's not as clean of a kind of a difference between, say, church and state as we would appreciate now today, especially in a place like the United States where you've got a, a you know, a long history and constitutional provision for the disestablishment of churches. Well, and at that time of uh, 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 the Reformation and shortly thereafter, you had uh, groups known as the Anabaptists or called the Radical Reformers that did not hold that view, that did believe that the uh, the state should not be allied to the church in that way, and then they were even persecuted. Immediately, immediately. So right away, you have, as I said, a wide diversity of opinions about the way the society ought to be ordered, the status of things like private property, the legitimacy of bearing the sword at all, or in which cases. Um, you have the Peasants' Revolt, obviously, in, in the Lutheran context very early. Luther, um, you know, immediately is fearful of the unity of the political order, which in, you know, in the small part of Germany that he is and makes arguments about um, the dangers of anarchism and the dangers of these radical reformers, the kind of political dangers apart from their, their, what he would view as heretical views of, of, um, of God and so on. So immediately you get this kind of uh, very dynamic, literally firestorm of, political and social disorder and unrest that sweeps across the European continent. And there are different kinds of ways that theologians and civil authorities try to balance this. Well, let me talk about it, just give you a couple of examples, mm -hmm. or at least one model of, of a way to think about, I think, what was going on. Um, you know, the the magisterial reformers, we talk about them as, as holding a high view of the civil authority, and that's usually associated with Luther and John Calvin in Geneva and their kinds of traditions is the magisterial reformation. They understood that you could not hold a sword to someone's throat and make them say some words and thereby make them have true faith. Mm -hmm. They understood that there were limits to what you could do in terms of coercion. Um, you could not coerce true faith. At the same time, they saw that there was great social and even more important spiritual danger in allowing her heresy and apostasy to spread, um, which is why you see them kind of balancing these two concerns and saying, you know, if we have the civil authorities that are going to in some way, to some extent, enforce orthodoxy or protect the true gospel, we run the risk of hypocrisy. We run the risk of, of having people just say that they believe so that they don't get thrown in prison or that they don't get excommunicated or something like that. So there's a limit to the effectiveness that political power can have in terms of promoting true faith. They realized this, but they thought that that risk was worth taking in a sense because the alternative version was so much more dangerous. You would have people running around saying, you know, that Jesus Christ was a creature, not the son of God, not truly divine or all kinds of different heresies, you know, people were promoting at the time. And that was more dangerous, they thought, to allow to have happen because then you would lead people astray. 
not only would their eternal souls be put into danger, but you'd also have the kind of resulting social unrest. So there's a concern that we have to keep this kind of unified vision of uh, theological and doctrinal authority and civil authority on the same page and in agreement. That was essentially the view of the magisterial reformers. On the other hand, was this argument essentially that you cannot coerce true faith and that uh, there should not be coercion in religion. This is a long-standing argument. You could call it the kind of minority position that goes back to Tertullian and Lactantius in the early church that says you should not use civil, civil power to coerce faith and that we have to find some way to live together and that you can separate to some extent this unity, this unitary vision of having to all believe the same things about God and being able to live together in peace in a civil polity. And those are the two views that are essentially on offer with all kinds of variants at the time. And as those things develop, uh, as those movements develop over the course of the 16th and 17th century, you, you get wars of religion and people are literally fighting people, you know, from other countries, part of its um, social and economic as well as political and theological. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very complex, but you get the wars of religion and people are essentially realize, look, we can't kill our ways, our way to unity <laughs> anymore. Um, and so as you get into the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, you get a kind of consensus, and maybe it's a practical consensus as well as a theoretical one, that um, we have to try this experiment to disassociate so closely spiritual and temporal power. Well, it's a, it's a big discussion, and certainly the early settlers to America uh, from Europe, uh, uh, the pilgrims uh, come to mind. They came, what was it, roughly uh, 400, just over 400 years ago this month. Yeah, and, and wasn't religious liberty one of the driving forces in their lives, wanting that freedom to not be under a sort of a state church? So there are all kinds of amazing stories of individuals and groups who, through, over the course of the intervening centuries from 1517 onward, experience some sort of persecution or oppression or marginalizations and are seeking to find a place where they can live out the courage of their, you know, live authentically and without being punished or sanctioned. Um, yeah, Anabaptists and many others were were executed in all of these cities, uh, essentially. Um, they were drowned in Zurich. The most famous case would be that of Miguel Cervetas in, in Geneva being burned at the stake. The Pilgrim Fathers and the Mayflower uh, settlers spent time in the Netherlands after they had had sought, you know, to find a place away mm -hmm. from out of England. Um, had spent spent some time in in the Netherlands before heading to the New World. And what's interesting about the the colonial period in the United States and the pre and, and the pre revolutionary period is you see the same kinds of dynamics start to play out in the New World as in the Old World in the sense that. People were seeking a place where they could live in, in, um, auth you know, in a kind of authentic and genuine, have that genuine experience of living, you know, lives fully integrated before God. But they defined their own limits to what that could be, right? So you see people getting exiled and punished in various ways from these new communities that had 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 fled from persecution. Um, and so that's why it's a, an experiment like Rhode Island is so interesting in the United States. Um, and Pennsylvania and the, the vision of William Penn in terms of, um, you know, what the hope was for religious liberty. And so in that sense, you know, you come to the new world, you bring many of the old world dynamics with you. Um, and yet America really represents a unique experiment in trying to um, 
live out and find a place for this genuine religious conviction to find expression amidst all the great diversity that you have and find a way to do so peacefully, which in many ways we're still struggling with today in 2022. And so in that sense, uh, from that understanding that you've given and the diversity of understanding and how it's been expressed, the desire, the deep belief for religious liberty is really in the DNA of of our country, which explains why religious liberty is really enshrined in the First Amendment. Exactly. That's, I mean, if it's so important to to understanding what the United States is and what the United States is as a kind of unique experiment in the history of, of um, human civilization. It's not that there were, were never any other examples of toleration and pluralism and things like that in the past. There are, there are many notable ones in the 16th and 17th century. For example, the Polish, Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth was notable for the kinds of, diversity, its treatment of Jews and many other minority faiths in the time. But in terms of um, in the modern world, you do see this as a kind of new experiment in many ways, hopefully learning from the mistakes of the past, learning from the errors and the excesses of trying to unite church and civil power too closely. And what happens when you do that? You you end up killing people uh, for the, for what they believe. You end up fighting with one another over these kinds of things. Um, and so that's essentially, I think, what what the First Amendment represents is an attempt to find some new model, some new way of living together. And the, the past two, cent- two plus centuries of, of American history have been, I think, a model case of how this uh, can, can work itself out and to show that these are sort of intractable problems. We're always going to be faced with um, the challenge of having ultimate and transcendent beliefs about reality and then convictions about how those realities inform how we ought to live and then finding ways of relating to others who disagree with us fundamentally it may be the difference between a lutheran and a catholic or a lutheran and a calvinist or it might be the difference between a lutheran and a muslim or a a christian and and, and a jewish person or more often nowadays um any kind of religious believer and an agnostic or, or an atheist. So these are the dynamics of pluralism that the modern world um, faces. And we can look to the past as examples uh, to learn from. In many cases, they're negative examples, things we shouldn't perhaps really try <laughs> again. And we have to find new ways of trying to be faithful in new contexts. Well, we're, we're squeezing a lot into a short amount of time. And I know that uh, what you do there, Dr. Baylor, at the uh, Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy goes to this question, but broadly speaking, why do you believe religious liberty is so important to the health and to the future of America? You know, there's some wise people who said when when things are going poorly, you should look back to the original constitution of things, what what the uh, the original purpose, the telos of, of something is, hmm. and then look to make changes that will bring things back into accord with that purpose. And as you were just saying, if you look at the founding era, uh, there is a an emphasis on religious liberty that's built into American identity. We, there are also all kinds of examples we could point to. Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport is, is a fine example of this conviction from the very beginnings of the American experiment in ordered liberty. And so um, celebrating, protecting, and advancing pluralism and religious liberty is an essential part of what it means to be an American, I think, and what it is to 
to recognize America as a as a unique experiment. So, um, in that sense, we need to re-examine the basis of our country, the basis of uh, what its founding meant, and the gifts that we've been given, really, both materially as well as intellectually and spiritually in this country, and make sure that we're good stewards of what we've been gifted from previous generations. And the wisdom, I think, of separating church establishment uh, from a, uh, political power is one of those legacies that we have to, I think, live into and live responsibly with today. And yet at the same time, you're, you're uh, not saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in the political process. You're saying separating the church, its str- church structures from the political structures, that they shouldn't somehow be blended or allied. Yeah, so that's that's where we get into the really fascinating and important work of being faithful in a mo- in the modern world and in a plural, diverse, democratic society. And so the disestablishment of institutional religion or the institutional church from the state does not mean that religion is does not have an important place in the public square. Um, in fact, how much more impoverished would our civil discourse and the history of the United States be if we did if we, you know, excised religion and um, Christian discipleship from the public square. No, in fact, disestablishing the institution allows people to organically and spontaneously and spiritually band together through all kinds of other means, the rich traditions of American civil associationism and philanthropy and so on, to make all kinds of important arguments and um, be active in the public square in a faithful way for the betterment of all of society. What is important uh, from where you sit for uh, believers, for Christians, in terms of helping maintain religious liberty? It might sound uh, maybe a bit, um, not abstract necessarily, but the individual might wonder, well, uh, what what do I have to do? What does this have to do with me? What can I do? Yeah, first I would say it's important that we protect the the liberties that we have um, in the law. So the CRCD is, is hosted, as I said, at First Liberty Institute. First Liberty Institute, uh, along with other groups, does really important work, necessary work to protect the legal freedoms that we have that have been gifted to us, that have that are in many ways our legacy. And so as you're able, you know, think about making financial support to those kinds of organizations. But it's really not religious liberty is about much more than just what what is there on the books, the letter of the law. It's about living authentically. And that's, I guess, how I would conclude in terms of encouraging people is to to do your best to to be faithful in all areas of your life and to follow God's call in your own individual situations and contexts to be faithful and to to be an authentic disciple of Jesus in whatever context you find yourself or in whatever context he places you. And that's where religious liberty, the experience of religious liberty is gonna become so much more salient because as you try to live out faithfully, you're gonna encounter all kinds of obstacles and arguments that have to be made. And sometimes they're just discussions with people who disagree with you and we need to find a way to persuade others. And uh, unfortunately, in some cases, you're going to have to um, make more than arguments for your for your rights. You're going to have to stand up for yourself in a courtroom and say, you know, I need someone to help protect, protect my rights um, to be faithful. What happens in a country where religious liberty is restricted or absent? I mean, obviously, we can look just around our world. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could talk about many dimensions of both kinds of, in terms of the the social fabric of the society, the impacts on the political process. Religious liberty is one dimension, an important and an essential dimension of 
liberty more broadly understood. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a government or a state that's both willing and able to restrict religious liberty, they're willing and able to restrict liberty in all kinds of other senses. So that um, it's, it's never enough, you know, for a tyrant to, to um, restrict what you believe and how you worship. They want to control other aspects of your life too. Um, and then you could also just look more narrowly at the experience of the church. You know, the, the, the experience of the church, how governments treat churches, the Christian church is a great kind of litmus test or, or um, a bellwether for liberty more broadly. And so where the church suffers and is oppressed, the society more broadly suffers and is oppressed and vice versa as well. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Jordan Baylor, Director of Research at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. We've been discussing his world opinions piece, Religious Liberty and the Reformation. You can read it at wng.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Doug Rothheis on using apologetics for making a compelling case for Christian faith. It has two essential reasons, and that is, or purposes, that is to help bring people to Christ, to remove obstacles between them and the cross of Christ, and then also to build up believers who are having doubts or questions or issues. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.